0: Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I've got to tell you, I love what we get to do here. It's a lot of fun, and it's rewarding to connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars here at the American Enterprise Institute. We do this through campus events, reading groups, summer seminars, conferences in D.C., and through this podcast, The Campus Exchange. So, if you're a student and this all sounds as fascinating to you as it does to me, hit subscribe on this show in your podcast player so you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, go to AEI.org and find the For Students page in the About tab. There, you can see all the ways to get and stay engaged with us through things like our newsletter, The Connector, and our year-round programming to bring AEI to your campus called Executive Council. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Now, today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Naomi Schaefer-Riley and Executive Council student Nidhi Krishnan on child welfare issues ranging from foster care and adoption, and other family law issues. This is really important work that Naomi is a leading expert on. and I hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: Thank you, Jeff. My name is Nidhi Krishnan, and I'm a junior at Washington University in St. Louis, studying American culture studies, math, and Arabic. Today, I'm really grateful to be speaking with Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She focuses on issues of child welfare, and she's also a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and the author of six books, including Till Faith Do Us Apart, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America, and No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives. She's published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and LA Times on topics ranging from parenting to religion. Naomi holds a BA in English and government from Harvard University. Naomi, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So I wanted to start kind of um, with your work on uh, children and especially children in the foster care system, some of the most vulnerable children that kind of um, we see in our country. Um, What do you think the root causes of um, the large number of children in foster care stem from? Um, and what do you think that the best mechanisms to tackle these root causes are as a follow-up?
2: Sure. Um, so there are about 420,000 kids or so uh, who are in the foster care system, uh, kind of if you take a snapshot at a point in time uh, right now. And I think that what a lot of people don't understand is how much our substance abuse crisis in this country is driving our child welfare crisis. Um uh, There's certainly a high correlation, uh, but it's more than that. Um, You know, some estimates suggest that uh, in about 80% of cases of a child going into the foster care system, uh, there's some kind of substance abuse involved on the part of the parents. So what is going on there? I mean, I think in some ways it seems obvious, but um, particularly when it comes to small children, uh, infants, obviously you get the phenomenon of children being born substance exposed. Um, and that certainly received a lot of publicity. Um, but once, you know, children are born and small, uh, anyone who's ever tried to care for a small child realizes uh, that even when one is sober, it's very difficult to do. Uh, children require constant attention, changing, feeding, um, and, uh, and, and really kind of small periods of time of not paying attention can have pretty devastating impacts on kids. Um, so that's, I think, uh, one of the m- most important factors to think about. Um, another factor to think about is certainly family breakdown, generally speaking. Um, uh, you know, kids who are growing up in two-parent married homes uh, are about 10 times less likely to be abused uh, as children who are growing up in a home of say a mother and a non-relative male which is you know typically a mother's boyfriend um, so those are those are some of the root causes that I think uh, we see and certainly they have been um, you know exacerbated over the last uh, half century or so um, with periods going up and down you know I mean we're right now in a period of drug crisis um, and so I think um, you definitely see uh, a lot of kids um,
1: uh, coming to the attention of child welfare authorities as a result of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you kind of touched on, I know sometimes kind of this uh, topic is framed in more of a governmental sense, but these seem like two very social and cultural issues that kind of we as society can take steps on. Yeah, I, I guess I would I would sort of clarify sort of there's the things that
2: I was talking about in terms of the root causes are the root causes of child maltreatment, um, which I think is the root. You know, is is why kids go into the foster care system. But the decision to put a child in foster care is a government decision, and we can actually kind of artificially make that number go up and down. So if a lot of people think, "Oh, too many kids are in foster care," or we don't have the resources to care for kids in foster care, we can make that number go down. And I think the public might think, oh, that's great news. Um, But in fact, it might not
1: be a symbol or a signal that uh, child maltreatment is going down. Sure. Yeah. Even if kind of the number, like the indicators going down, the root causes are still present. Um, kind of with the the topic of substance abuse and family breakdown, um, do you have any kind of like uh, ideas or policy solutions that um, have have worked in the past, or maybe have been trialed in certain states that um, you think could address those root causes? It's really hard to
2: change parent behavior. Um, oftentimes, uh, these sorts of dysfunctions are multi multi generational. Kids who have uh, spent time in the foster care system themselves are much more likely to have their own children enter the foster care system. Um, substance abuse is often a kind of multi generational phenomenon, um, and uh, you know, and and a lack of stable two parent homes is also a multi generational phenomenon. So it's it's very hard to reform those things. And I think as anyone who is familiar with kind of the um, addiction crisis that we have in this country, um, our addiction treatment programs are unfortunately not foolproof. Um, There's a lot of emphasis now in the child welfare system on preventive measures, on saying like, you know, what can we do to give parents the, you know, quote unquote services that they need in order to rehabilitate um, to either make sure that their children can stay in their home or that they can be returned to them as quickly as possible, which are the sort of the goals of the child welfare system. Um, You know, unfortunately, what we see a lot is parents kind of cycling in and out of rehab programs. Um, They'll get clean for a little while. And then unfortunately, Uh, end up back, uh, you know, with the same sorts of substance abuse problems. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the ways to address that are probably similar to the ways we need to address the addiction crisis program Addiction crisis, generally speaking. So, if you look, for instance, you know we have a lot of uh, in this country uh, drug courts that are sort of supposed to help people with uh, rehabilitation instead of just putting them in jail for drug crimes. Similarly, there are family drug courts um, where someone can voluntarily decide to go on this different track if they've had a child removed from their home, um, where they have to show up, uh, say once a week in court, take a drug test, um, and then the courtroom not only you know kind of as the the typical people, you know, some, someone from child welfare, but also will have representatives of a variety of programs, transitional housing, rehabilitation. Um, and I think the combination of um, the frequency with which they have to appear, um, you know, the accountability there uh, once once a week is, is, you know, pretty often to ask someone to show up. Um, and also the presence of all of those people who could be helping, I think, is very useful in terms of keeping parents on track. Um, you know, I think that there's some evidence that these programs work. It's very hard, unfortunately, to separate out kind of correlation from causation because the parents who sign up for these programs often also tend to be the most motivated. But I think just generally speaking, if we're trying to think in terms of what will help parents um, on that end, uh, I think certainly that that level accountability is also useful. Um, The other thing I would say is definitely kind of thinking about the long term for these parents. You know, a lot of parents say, well, oh, you know, the child welfare agency has told me to take a parenting class. So, you know, for 12 weeks, they'll go to a parenting class and kind of just check off the boxes, and that will sort of be the end of the, um, you know, the quote-unquote education there. Um, there are definitely faith-based organizations that have tried to form kind of longer-term relationships with these parents so that they have people to call um, in moments of crisis and also to kind of mentor them as parents um, as they go through some very difficult periods. Um, so I think if if there are ways of kind of thinking about long-term Programs to help these parents. And rather than just sort of these short, you know, oh, I checked off a box programs, I think those are also more likely to be successful.
1: Definitely. That's really good insight to have. And I I loved kind of the piece that you brought in about kind of accountability um, in the court system and how that um, is incentivized with the drug courts systems. Um, I wanted to continue a little bit more on that topic um, of like foster care and especially accountability. Um, I know that some states have recently come under fire for charging birth parents for the cost of foster care and and billing those birth parents. Um, Some critics may argue that that policy burdens parents who are already struggling um, with taking care of their children. So I wanted to ask kind of your general views on that concept or I guess how the state's interest versus the parent's interest can be balanced.
2: Yeah, I certainly don't think it makes a lot of sense uh, to charge a parents uh, when their kids go into foster care. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, the the states are kind of struggling in all things, um, and they're certainly struggling to pay for the cost of, of foster care in a lot of cases. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the child welfare system uh, always seems to get the short end of the stick. The folks who are working in it um, are often paid very little. Um, they don't receive a lot of training. Um, there are just not a lot of resources in the foster care system. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we need to think about is, you know, what h- how those how those payments work. I've written a little bit about the question of, you know, would we be getting better levels of foster care if we paid foster parents more? Um, and I, I tend not to think that's the case. I don't think that money is at the root of the problems in the foster care system. I don't think that it's the lack of money on the part of parents that are driving kids into child welfare systems. And I also don't think it's uh, low payments of foster parents that are creating kind of a shortage of foster homes for kids. So just to kind of take the first part, um, I think a lot of people talk about how poverty is driving child welfare. And I think that feeds into this conversation like, oh, um, we're, we're hurting these parents even more by taking this money away from them. And I would certainly agree with that. But I don't think uh, poverty is what led their children to be taken away. Much more often, it really is a substance abuse or mental illness. Um, and there is certainly a high correlation with substance abuse and mental illness and poverty. Um, but I think people get the cause and effect wrong. Often it's substance abuse and mental illness, which both prevents you from, say, holding down a steady job and prevents you from caring properly for your children. Uh, but people just assume, oh, I don't have enough money, and therefore the state is coming to take my kids away. Um, on the other end, when we're thinking about the payments into the foster care system, payments to foster families, um, there are certainly people who go into it for the money. Um, but I think if we want to think about recruiting you know, uh, high-quality, um, you know, ordinary middle-class Americans to do foster care, um, I think the system actually needs to be oriented around treating those families with respect um, and understanding that these are people who have jobs. Um, so you get a lot of child welfare workers who just kind of treat foster parents as glorified babysitters. Um, you know, I'll just drop off this kid. I'm not going to tell you anything about what's going on with the child. Um, you know, allergies, history of sexual abuse, all sorts of other problems. Um, maybe you said you would be able to take in a teenager and I've just dropped off a two year old. Um you know, not listening to the concerns of foster parents in court, um, not understanding that you can't just say, um, I'll be there at 9 a.m. tomorrow and expect that that person, you know, doesn't have a job or doesn't have anything else that they need to be at. Um, So I think those things would go a long way toward improving the quality of foster parents that we get. Um, And the focus on money, I think, is sometimes a little bit of a distraction.
1: Definitely. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that foster parents are that money is oftentimes not a prime focus of that, and um, a lot of foster parents are kind of doing, um, choosing to do this for kind of their own reasons. Or uh, it's it's I guess it's hard to um, make the decision solely based on money because it is um, such a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your work on parenting and kind of raising children. Um, I thought that um, some of the topics that you've written about in your books were really interesting. Um, so I wanted to ask kind of um, with the recent focus on gender equity in parenting, um, your general thoughts about um, how this is going to affect how parents raise their kids. I think that um, especially uh, in the past 10 years, society has put a, a huge emphasis on raising children in a way that decentralizes gender roles, um, for example, not assigning uh, like what would be traditionally female chores um, to only girls or vice versa. Um, what do you think of this idea, and what do you think the um, the impacts of this are going to um, be on kind of the next generation of children?
2: I think. You'll probably see some impacts, but I think limited ones um, you know, which is not to say that uh, i I don't think boys can put away dishes and girls can take out the garbage um, but I think that the goal of some of these efforts is really to change um, uh, boys and girls' attitudes toward parenting responsibilities later on um, and that I think is where things get thorny, so you might have like a young married couple that thinks that they're You know, um, uh, very egalitarian. You know, uh, he does all the cooking; she does the dishes. Maybe she earns more money than he does. You know, I I think you know all of those things um, seem quite plausible, especially given women's higher rates of uh, college degrees and and that sort of thing. Um, And you know, the fact that men can like cooking too. But uh, when children are born, um, you know, biologically that becomes uh, the, the 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 women bear the brunt of that biologically. And I think in the first few years of parenting too, um, it's also that women in survey after survey suggest that they want to spend more of their time um, raising kids, that they are much more likely to say they want to work part-time or don't want to work at all if that's possible. Um, And so the, the kind of division of chores never quite gets around to what the individual preferences of women actually are um and it's not that they might not still feel pulled to that career uh, you know, and and want to return to it later on. And that's sort of a whole other topic. Um, but I think uh, a lot of our policies, uh, you know, that that we're trying to impose on people don't take into account women's actual preferences um, in terms of uh, caring for young children. And I would say, obviously, that's a relatively short part of our lifespan now. So um, I don't think that you know, you need to give up on egalitarianism permanently. Um, but I think there has to be some acknowledgement among, uh, you know, the the young people who are younger people who are having children, um, that you know your your feelings may change, and raising kids is not the same as just who does the dishes.
1: Definitely, definitely, that's a kind of a a good point to kind of bring in in terms of like the cultural. Um, norms surrounding uh, child raising and individual preferences too. Um, I think that's lost a lot of policy debates. Um, I think the common kind of counter argument that I've heard is that, yes, maybe in surveys, women indicate that they would rather kind of spend the first couple of years of a child's life um, staying at home or not working. Um, I guess my follow-up to that would be How much do you think that that individual preference is innate and biological versus kind of something that's been shaped by our gender norms or kind of um, societal expectations on women?
2: I think it's remained pretty consistent, and that leads me to believe that some of it, a large part of it is is biological. Um, I mean, I think what you've seen in the last 50 or so years is that fathers are spending a lot more time with children. Um, they're doing a lot more around the home. They're much more involved as parents. Um, but in terms of their preferences about, you know, uh, whether they would like to continue working full time and that sort of thing, I think you find that fathers still tend to get Um, a lot more of the kind of the purpose that they're looking for um, in the provider role, the financial provider role, uh, than women do, and women tend to you know f- feel a lot worse about not being around young children uh, than men do. Um I think it's very hard to separate out just the 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 cultural from the biological imperatives, but I would say given the consistency with which that sort of those those preferences have been expressed, um i I, I would say it's very hard to say it's it's mostly cultural.
1: Definitely. Yeah, that's uh, like an important metric. And I know it's kind of hard to separate like out all of um, like the different factors that might go into preferences. But um, thanks so much for kind of explaining a little bit about how that's measured. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit from parenting and um, child raising and discuss um, your work um, in your book, uh, The New Trail of Tears where you argue that the United States' current policies have disadvantaged Native Americans. Um, I know this is kind of an open-ended question, but um, kind of in light of your book, um, what kind of policy changes do you think um, that the United States could feasibly implement that would improve the quality of life of Native populations in the U.S.?
2: So there are a lot of different policies that I talk about in that book. I think, um, you know, the, the sort of primary focus and trying to understand why these communities are so economically disadvantaged, I think lies with the lack of property rights that American Indians have. Um, a lot of people don't really understand what a reservation is, but a reservation is land that's held in trust by the federal government for American Indians. Uh, the only other people we hold things in trust for are uh, the mentally Um, disabled uh, and children. Um, And so I think sort of this, there's a whole kind of patronizing attitude that we should, you know, we need to think about too. Um, But primarily the effect of the lack of property rights for Native Americans is a lack of economic development. Uh, Because they don't own the land, um, they can't, for instance, get mortgages. They can't, for instance, borrow against the land to start small businesses. Um, There's also a, a lot of problems in these communities with the rule of law. It's not really clear in some places um, who is responsible for enforcing the law, whether it's uh, tribal law enforcement or state or federal authorities. Um, so that sort of creates a certain kind of lawlessness in some of these communities that also makes um, economic development uh, much more difficult and social dysfunction much more prevalent. Um, The education system uh, on these reservations is also a significant problem. There are federal schools that are run by the Bureau of Indian Education. Those are among the worst, um, despite uh, spending, you know, enormous amounts of money and much higher than the average in the United States. Um, not only is the teaching terrible, but the buildings are basically falling down. Um And, uh, you know, what you get on these reservations, unfortunately, is a lot of um, a a kind of nepotism situation where the people who get the jobs, because some of the only jobs on the reservations are actually public school teachers or other government employees. So the only people who get the jobs are the people who happen to know folks um, on the tribal council or be related to them. So it's not a meritocracy at all. And there's very little competition um for schooling on the reservations. Um, sometimes I you know, I wrote a little bit about some um, Um, some Catholic schools that exist slightly off the reservation or some attempts um, at charter schools. Unfortunately, the states with the largest American Indian population also uh, happen to be the ones that don't have charter school laws. Um, So I would say the combination of those things, the um, lack of rule of law, lack of property rights and lack of um, educational choice, I think uh, is really sort of putting these um, uh, communities in in pretty uh, terrible situations.
1: Definitely. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that um, a lot of times kind of the, the reservation debate is framed as, okay, this is actually helpful for Native populations to all live together and have some, um, like, be able to live in a, like, a smaller society that recognizes those norms. But I, I think that that's a great point that that you've made throughout the book about how, uh, like, not having that access to the free market and not having property rights and various other um, rights that exist kind of outside of those reservations can hurt um, native populations and especially contribute to lack of intergenerational wealth. Um, so thanks so much for talking a little bit about that. Um, and I think uh, now I wanna go to the final question where which we ask all of our guests on the podcasts. Um, and it's, uh, what do you know now that you wish uh, that you knew in college hmm. um, so
2: when I first left college um, the the first job I got in in journalism um, I, uh, I I was an intern at The Wall Street Journal and um, I started writing for the Um, papers, religion column. It's called the Houses of Worship column. And I kind of fell into it just because it was a new column and they didn't have a lot of people who were willing to contribute to it. So I would start writing occasionally for that. Um, But I didn't really have uh, kind of much of a background in understanding uh, religion. Um, It's not something that I took a class in in college. So I kind of wish um, I had. I I kind of got a crash course as I started to write more and more about it. But I think that, um, you know, something I wish I knew uh, because I didn't envision myself as kind of a reporter um, was just uh, maybe taking classes in a lot of subjects that I knew nothing about, Um, I think. Uh, might have prepared me a little bit better. Um, I mean, you know, the other alternative is just, you know, uh, (laughs) baptism by fire, I guess. Um, But just kind of, uh, you know, feeling like not all of these classes have to put me on the path to whatever I think I'm going to do after school. Um, But just kind of looking through the course catalog sometimes and seeing, uh, you know, what might be interesting, particularly kind of introductory classes, um, I think is sometimes beneficial after towards.
1: Definitely. That's great advice. And I will try to explore more and throughout the rest of my college career. Well, it sounds like Um, with your three majors, you've got a lot going on already. So I've I've dabbled a little bit. So Um, this has been such a great conversation, Naomi, and thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.